This is episode 50 of the Immunology Podcast, IUIS 2023, where immunologists meet with Drs. Mary Murad and Mark Davis. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Roud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Immunology Podcast, rate us and leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Drs. Miriam Arad and Mark Davis from IUIS on the podcast to talk about what to expect at the 2023 IUIS Congress taking place in Cape Town, South Africa from November 27th to December 2nd. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights of the immunological news coming up, but first... Talking about conferences, Immunology 2023, which is the annual meeting of the American Association of Immunologists, will take place from May 11th to May 15th in Washington, D.C., right there in America. For most uh, up-to-date information about Immunology 2023, including the scientific program, very important, you can visit www.immunology2023.org. All right. We have a bunch of trips coming up, Brenda. We do. Uh, the podcast is going on the road. Are yeah. you excited? I am. So, you know, we got the one in May coming up and then we're going to South Africa uh, right at the uh, turn of the month, which is going to be exciting. I've never been there. I don't know if you have. No, I've never been anywhere in Africa. So super exciting. Another Mm. continent off the list. Same here. Yes. Yeah. Bucket list thing. Uh, No, I've never been. um, I do come from the Southern Hemisphere, so that will feel um, familiar enough for me. So have you been South? In the south, in the southern hemisphere. No, I've been equatorial, but that's about it. Oh well, you are in for a treat. Everybody knows it's the best hemisphere. Well, it's gonna be summer when it's winter up north, so that'll be interesting. That's true. That hopefully the weather will be nice. End of November, beginning of December. Early summer, right? Like if I do this right, it's like late spring, right? Summer would technically start in December 21st. Okay. So this will be like but, May. So we're going to two conferences with the same weather at opposite times true. of the year. There you go. Six that's months true. apart. Hey. Yeah. Like we How can exciting. wear the same outfits. We can like match it all up the same way. <laughs> we can wear like colors, but then upside down or something like that. Just to, <laughs> that's going to require a black shirt and purple shorts <laughs> or pants. That's going to be real mm. weird. <laughs> No, let's not do that. Let's not do. That. But talking about upside down, you know that the, the the stars in the southern hemisphere constellation, the few constellations that we can see from both sides, they look upside down uh, in the south. So I always remember, you know, Orion's Belt. We we have a different name. Like I don't know if it's where it comes from. We call it the Three Marys, probably some Catholic thing. So you have the Three Marys, which are the, the uh-huh. Orion Belt, and then it's always funny because. People say, yeah, that's the belt, the Orion belt. And then the, it has like a little d- dagger hanging from the belt. And then when you see it in the Southern Hemisphere, the dagger is upwards, right? It's like, yeah, the guy is upside down. Makes no sense. And then when it came to the Northern Hemisphere, all of a sudden, the, you know, the guy is up straight. I, I think looking at the constellations and saying, I, I can see a dipper. I get that one, right? That's the easiest. But a lot of the other stuff, like, yeah, can't you see how it combines this way? I'm like... You were on some shrooms when you uh, <laughs> kind of put those together and decided it was a shape. I'm sorry. Well, you have the Southern Cross. That's very nice. It's a very nice cross. Very easy to find. It's cross-shaped. It has like five little stars. And then he tells you which way South, the South Pole is. 
because of how we spin, right? You can do latitude by the stars, but you can't do longitude by the stars. That's no. the problem, which is why you have to have star charts because the stars are fixed latitude wise. If you go up and down, but longitude, they change for navigation without fancy things. You have to have star charts for where they are at a certain time of year and the longitude you're at because it all changes. Yeah, that, or better have very precise watches and then just that's how the Brits did it. You know, the whole story of the precise, you should go to Greenwich, to the observatory in London. They're very nice. But we are digressing. We're not an astronomy podcast, are we? Although it's a very nice discipline. Keeping things engaging here, I'm going to talk about tumor, how tumor PD-L1 engages myeloid PD-1 to suppress type 1 interferon to impair cytotoxic T lymphocyte recruitment. Published March 13th, Cancer Cell. Last author is Kaben Liu. First author is John Clement. Um, I also think the second co-first author is Priscilla Red, based on the footnotes. There we go. Yes, correct. All right. So, you know, PD-1 blockade, it's all in vogue. You know, PD-1 ligand with PD-1, you know, makes, makes uh, cells not want to kill bad things, right? Causes immune suppression. High-level story, right? We all know it makes... Fancy new immunotherapy drugs blockade this pathway. Something that they found, though, is that it's not very consistent across tumor types, primary versus metastases and other engagements. And it, there seems to be effects going on that are not just related to suppressing cytotoxic T cells. So we know that the PD-1 pathway can suppress cytotoxic T cells and prevent killing. But figuring out how else it's working has been difficult to a certain extent. So this paper looks at co-cultures, mostly of tumor cells and specific and tumor-specific cytotoxic lymph sites. And they do this combination of mouse systems and ex vivo and just cell culture and then validate some of this in humans at the end, like one must do. But what they demonstrate is that obviously, if you delete the TC, T cell PDL1, you have decreased lung metastasis in a CTL dependent manner in the mice. So the, it, the cytotoxic PDL1, the ligand part of the thing, they're both actually receptors, they're, they're, they're transmembrane proteins. So, but at one's L1, one is not. It has a role in affecting lung metastasis but not necessarily other models of tumor. But it's not the direct actor in this process. What they find in this paper, and they do some tracing and then all the requisite knockouts. And so how they kind of get to this whole conclusion is through some combination of knockouts, looking at RNA-seq for signaling and seeing patterns of other immune cells that are really important for the response they see that weren't the cytotoxic lymphocytes, and then going back and doing more knockouts and validating it. And what they find is it's actually the myeloid cells, specifically the macrophages, that um, have the PD-1 on it that the cytotoxic lymphocytes are interacting with. So what's happening is, is that the T-cell PD-L1 engages the myeloid PD-1, and that activates... SHP2 signaling, which is a known part of the PD-1 cascade, to antagonize the interferon-1 and STAT-1 pathways and impair cytotoxic T-cell recruitment to lung metastases. So it's actually the myeloid cells who have the PD-1 going on 
And that, and so PD-1 blockade in some of these tumors is dependent on there being a myeloid working, depends on there being a myeloid cell population in the tumor, right? So kind of the, the hypothesis then in human disease that's responsive to PD-1, you have a good amount of myeloid cells sitting in those metastases. And so they're being signaled by the PD-1, right, to not do something. And so when you remove that, then you have T-cell engagement. You have then, you then have that pathway blocked. And so now the myeloid cells are going to drive cytotoxic T-cell recruitment. But it's not just PD-1 on T-cells doing this. It's the PD-1 on the myeloid cells interacting with T-cell PD-L1 at baseline in this uh, immunosuppressive tumor-promoting environment that, that allows the tumor to progress the metastases that are occurring. And so if you blockade that on the myeloid cell side of PD-1, then you can get re-engagement of the pathway. Uh, so it, it's giving us a key insight here in this paper about where the other cell actors are that are driving this. Okay. That's very interesting, like looking into PD-1 on myeloid cells, because usually people always think of even like cytotoxic T cells, like most of the focus has been on what PD-1 is doing on those cells. Um, so I find it very interesting that it is in this case, they find that is the myeloid cells that are actually suffering more. I also like it because often people focus a lot on the effect of PD-1 signaling on like TCR signaling when actually also PD-1 is also involved in other things, uh, also within the, the T cells. So, and so what I didn't get too much is the difference between primary tumor and metastases in a sense. Yeah. So this is, they're, they're finding that this TPDL1, the, 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 the T cell the tumor. No, I think it's tumor PDL1. Yeah, it's tumor, sorry, PDL1 enhances. Mm -hmm. It's not, regardless of how big the primary tumor grows. Mm -hmm. This is this is what's engaging for the metastases, right? So it, it's not necessarily the same pathway is what they get at. So they look at the tumor growth site versus metastasis and are finding out that knocking out the pathway not, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the primary tumor, but has to do with the downstream metastasis control. Because the tumor, the tumor engagement is signaling the macrophages to shut up and not recruit the cytotoxic T lymphocytes. Mm -hmm. But... That's really about metastatic control, right? You're going to have the tumor growing and sending stuff off. Once it starts seeding, the macrophages go, what the hell is this, and kill it, unless that tumor is signaling the macrophages to shut up. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. Oh, always other immune cells getting in the way of the work of the T cells. Aye, hey, aye. macrophages we've discussed are very important. Yeah, but they're double-faced. You know, you have good macrophages and you have bad macrophages. The T, yeah, so that's true of all T cells too. No, you have good T cells and confused T cells that want to be good, but they just not. And macrophages, they're just. Uh... What is? Oh, come on! A self, a self, <laughs> a self, a, a T cell against yourself is not a good T cell. It's not confused. It's turned <laughs> on okay, the dark wait. side. Okay, I think uh, you're right. Oh. All right. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing this new this, uh, new perspective on PD, PD-1, PD-L1 interactions. And 
Um, I want to talk about a paper. Actually, this is a publication from our uh, from our guest today, Mark Davis. Uh, this is actually the, the pre-proof, so it is fresh out of uh, the uh, scientific oven. Uh, but I thought it was really nice. I saw some some comments online, and I thought it was a cool paper to just just mention. Uh, ro robust T cell responses to Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine compared to infection and evidence of attenuated peripheral CD8 T cell responses due to COVID-19 is in, is the title of the paper. Uh, it's going to be published in Immunity, was just uh, accepted uh, about a week ago. And first authors, uh, Fei uh, Gao, and as I mentioned from the lab of, of Mark Davis, and Basically, in this publication, what they look, uh, they they take a kind of close look into um, CD into T cell uh, spike specific and also non spike uh, other uh, SARS CoV two specific T cell responses. They focus mostly on spike specific, uh, and by using a new um, platform for staining, uh, they call them um, spheromers. Uh, which is a uh, kind of a little structure made of a ferritin of a kind of a ferritin derived structure that has on its surface 12 uh, peptide MHC molecules that allows for a kind of a stronger stain and, and, and binding to the uh, peptide specific T cells. So they use this for both CD8 and CD4. So MHC1 and MHC2 restricted um, TCRs. And they, so, peptides and they use this to look into uh responses in patients and in people vaccinated um in and then they do kind of a really deep dive into uh the, the kinetics of the t cell responses upon either vaccination or uh infection with covid with the original so this is their samples were taking in kind of the early covid times um, and they also see what happens when people that had COVID are vaccinated on top. And I thought it was very interesting because the the, the I think that the whole idea is quite straightforward. They basically have these spheromers. They have samples from from various patients, and they look into uh, binding to peptide MHCs against dominant uh, kind of. They, they they choose a couple of MHC uh, molecules. I guess they choose the ones that are more most common amongst their 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 patients, um, and they pick up certain uh peptides that are predicted to to be um, um, to be presented on these MHCs and they use those so uh, they have several different uh peptide MHC uh, combinations and they have two different ones from H for uh MHC1 and one for MHC2 and they look into this the the this the serum the plasma of the patients and basically what they see is that um, what I think the highlights of their, they do a lot of analysis, but I think the highlights are kind of the, the big picture is the fact that they, when they look into the upregulate kind of the increase in, in cell numbers of CD8s and CD4s upon vaccination first, uh, they're, they're intrigued by the fact that they see that there's a difference in the kinetics of kind of uh, T cell expansion between CD8 and CD4 cell. Um, and they they see that and they suggest that this is something that might be specific to mRNA vaccines, uh, because they cite other other uh, other conditions in which this doesn't really happen. Um, and they see that whereas the the T cell the CD4 response is kind of peak up 
peak quite early on about a week you uh i think week or 10 days you have already kind of the peak amount of of, of uh, tetramer positive t cells uh in the cd4 compartment uh the cd8 compartment keeps expanding and keeps inflating uh, up to 40 days after the 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 the, the end of the vaccination uh, regime and so they suggest they they see that this is this is different and they are kind of they're not sure why this is but they they see this in, specifically for the vaccinated uh naive vaccinated individuals and then what i think is really cool is that they have some patients in which they had had symptoms of covid i think at that point it was not that easy to get actually uh tested via pcr or things like that it was was early covid but so these people are kind of confirmed covid patients and then they get uh, so they also look into the, the growth of the CD4 and CD8 populations, uh, spike-specific, uh, and they see lower amounts of tetramer-positive cells or like spike-specific cells. So in the case of the vaccination, you get, after the second doses, you can get almost 20% of all the CD8 cells in these patients are uh, spike-specific, but this this number is much lower for people that have had um, that had actual just an infection, a COVID infection. And also what is interesting is that when they look at the immunodominant peptides that are characterizing this, because they test different peptides, right? And they see that there's a, a different selection of immunodominant peptides between people that were vaccinated and people that had a natural COVID infection. So it's also very interesting to see that there's a fundamental difference in how the, the 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 immune system is seeing the virus and is seeing the spike protein uh either in, in from the virus or from the vaccine. Um, but I think what is also what caused a little bit of kind of talk uh in, in the neighborhood is the fact that they see uh that in the case of vaccinated of people that are vaccinated after having had COVID, they seem to have a lower antigen-specific CD8 response. So they have a lower frequency of tetramer-positive cells uh, after vaccination than people that were vaccinated while being naive against COVID. So suggesting that there's some kind of reduction in CD8 T-cell quality or something about the T-cells, that the CD8 T-cells that gets affected by a prior COVID infection. And this is not, they don't see the same for CD4 cells. So CD4 cell numbers are similar between naive and previously infected patients. Uh, so this is something specific about CD8. And the, the, the authors do mention, and we do know that um, COVID infection seems to affect MHC1 expression. So COVID does have have some uh, immune evasion uh, techniques, uh, which might explain the reduced CD8 positive uh, cells, uh, so uh, COVID positive, COVID specific cells in these patients. Uh, but well, but it's unclear. But I think that in general, I thought it was very interesting that that they see this. Um, and I guess there's a lot of debate nowadays. How much does COVID affect you know negatively your uh, immune system? Is this worrisome? Should we be worried? Is it uh, generally applicable? Is something that you see in many types of infection? Because we also know that other infections also give you, affect your immune system in a way. So, but this seems to be, seems to be something very specific about the CDHC cells. So that's, that's basically, I think the highlights, the highlights of this paper are about you know, the, the, these, these results and how they look at the very they could look with this, with this in these spherums, uh, spherums very 
closely into both C4 and CD8 responses uh, and, and their kinetics. Very interesting. I mean, I think the the final point you made as well, like what does it mean? It's also interesting because it's basically ubiquitous a virus now. We can't get avoid we can't avoid it, right? You're gonna get it, you're gonna get it again, then you're gonna get it again years later. So what does that really mean? And are we measuring things that happens in other viruses all the time that we never bothered measuring before? Yeah. How much of this is really specific to this entity? Are we just yeah. covering biology and heck, maybe the hygiene hypothesis of like more autoimmunity comes from the fact that if we're not as exposed to many viruses, we don't have enough tamp down of our immune system by all these infections we get. And so we have too hyperactive immune system. I mean, who knows, right? Maybe this yeah. is normal and actually why well, no one wants any given disease, getting some infections is what's required to have you not have crazy, you know, Darth T cells. To call that <laughs> yeah i mean in the end our immune systems evolved in a in, under constant pressure under constantly infectious pressure so i guess that um i don't know if it's desirable to have infections but it does seem like our immune system was developed in an environment it got used to being perpetually challenged and the fact that we don't do it might mean might we might not be ready we might not our our biology might not be tuned to uh are very hygienic hygienic uh present sequence everything yeah exactly we know it all like maybe we don't want to know about just maybe it's disturbing to know all these things right oh it is suppressing you but actually it's good to suppress it all right what you got i don't have a segue to this one uh but i'm a big fan of the the, the lab it comes from so this is in immunity it's endoplasmic reticulum stress and in the intestinal epithelium initiates purine metabolite synthesis and promotes TH17 cell differentiation in the gut. That's from the Blumberg lab um, at Brigham and Women's slash Harvard. Uh, first author is Jin Z. Duan. Um, so this relates to my, my field of work in IBD, actually. We know that disrupting the unfolded protein response and disrupting Xbox One binding protein can lead to IBD manifestations. That's some of Rich's uh, longstanding work. Um, he's kind of known for that as well as developing the FC receptor for uh, biologics, or as two big things, um, or at least being a major contributor for that. Uh, so when we think, and I'm oh, sorry, there's two first authors. The other first author is Juan de Matute. Um, sorry, caught that in a footnote. And so we know that microbes generate a push towards IE in IECs towards microbial adherence in Tesla epithelial cells generates a push towards TH17 cell differentiation. But how this happens, no one knows. Um, what happens is, is if you have bacteria that are known to do this and they map this out, note about experiments, knockouts, everything, that these bacteria that do this generate unfolded protein response in IECs. That leads to um, a downstream signaling cascades um, that involve both reactive oxygen species and purine metabolites. Um, and that reactive oxygen species and purine metabolites, because if you go to that step of the pathway and blockade those with anti-metabolites, alpyrinol and acetylcysteine, those downstream readouts of the unfolded protein response generate cause the generation of TH17 cells. So they have like an inducible uh, model that they do here for unfolded protein response, which is pretty sophisticated. 
So they have a you know the conditional knockout, but they also um, they have a drug inducible system for inducing uh, unfolded protein response. They put that into germ free mice and show that you don't need the bacteria; you just need the unfolded protein response. They also do this with just the bladed um, knocking out Xbox One binding protein, which will cause an unfolded protein response. And so they use these a couple of different systems to lead to showing that. The bacteria cause unfold the protein response. Unfold the protein response causes upregulations and RUOX and everything else. And then it comes back, and what ends up happening is that oxygen sensitivity, or that the, then the immune cells will sense that oxygen tension change in the purine metabolites, and that generates the whole Th1 17 process. So I thought it was cool because it. it a lot of microbiome papers like, oh, the microbiome causes this or that. But this actually gets the signaling that the bugs do that can be recapitulated without the bugs. And then the signaling without the bugs is demonstrated, and then that leads to the downstream pathways. So, you know, they know that this is associated with IBD in various ways, in terms of high levels of TH17. This genes that are involved here are involved in IBD with various SNPs. But the point being, it's really demonstrating a, a pretty good pathway to show how a signaling pathway induced by bacteria leads to downstream immune differentiation. And they map it out. So I liked it. So again, the bacteria telling us what to do. Is that it? I mean, we're just, you know, giant meat necks for bacteria. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I, I saw, I see why you, you like the paper. It's interesting. It's, it's, it's an interesting approach. All right. Um, wrapping up today our, our our lineup of papers. I want to talk another pa about another paper that caught my attention because also when I read the, the the title, I thought, "Whoa, what about this?" And then I have to say that I was a little bit underwhelmed, but but I guess it's uh, it's still pretty good. So this paper um, is called "The Dietary Sweetener Sucralose is a Negative Modulator of T-cell-Mediated Responses." So my question to you, Jason, is: Do you put sucralose in your coffee? No, I use real sugar, nothing at all. But mostly, I do not have uh, sugar in my coffee because I like my coffee dark, like my soul. That makes sense. That checks out. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> a lot of people freaked out. I think about this and like, oh my god, our, our artificial sweetener is killing us. Um, and, but, uh, I mean, I'm going to kind of spoil it here. They're not, but it's, it's interesting. So this paper was published in nature. Uh, first authors, Fabio Zani and Juliana Blaggy, uh, from the lab of Karen Vausten at the Francis Creek Institute in London. And basically they, 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 they started with the, with the, Idea. So people seem to kind of, there was some idea about like, are these sweeteners affecting our immune system or not? So they decided to come on, to kind of look at it uh, head on. So we know that sucralose so is a calorie free sweetener. So it doesn't affect the metabolism in principle of cells. It's not metabolized. But we do know that we have some limited absorption happens when you when you consume it, and that uh, if you consume 250 milligrams of sucralose, you can have plasma levels uh, of about one micromolar after uh, about an hour, hour and a half. Um, so they 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 looked into the maximum the the recommended maximum intake 
through like the regulatory uh, organs, either the FDA or the European equivalent of the FDA. And they used this to kind of interpolate uh, the plasma concentrations and try to interpolate how much sucralose that would mean in a mouse. And so they basically came up with this amount of sucralose uh, that would re would replicate this maximum uh, intake um, in humans, but in mice. And they then they tested what happened when you do the T cells and to the immune system when you uh, feed the mice this amount of sucralose. And again, long story short, they look into a bunch of things. They don't see major effects on myeloid populations or on B cells. And, but what they do seem to find is that T-cells seem to be affected by the presence of sucralose or by the consumption of sucralose by mice. So one of the examples that they look into is uh, transferring uh, uh, T-cells into RAT2 mice, uh, which then would proliferate. This is, this is normal homeostatic proliferation that happens uh, in these conditions. And they do see like... Um, the, there's a reduction in the in the proliferation of, of donor T cells in, in, in mice that are consuming uh, sucralose. They also they see reductions in proliferation in vitro, uh, the, uh, lower uh, polarization into a T helper subsets. And they look a lot a lot into why, what's going on. They look into particular receptors for for uh, for molecules like sucralose, and they they end they end up um, kind of homing down on that this is actually something that's TCR dependent because they see that if uh, you induce proliferation of T cells by high amounts of IL-2, for example, this uh, inhibition is bypassed. And also if you activate the cells with PMA and unomycin, which of course bypasses completely the TCR, uh, the, there's no effect of sucralose presence in the cell. So they look into different, so they, they, they kind of realize there's somewhere downstream of the TCR that this is happening, somewhere around the TCR, but not too much lower because uh, PMA unomycin would, uh, would, would show that. And they end up showing that there's a delay in the uh, phosphorylation of one particular uh, uh, protein. This is uh, phospholipase. Uh, uh, C gamma one, which is of course was uh, discussed in our last episode, uh, talking about the TCR uh, TCR signaling. So this this uh, phospholipase goes downstream of TCR, SAP seventy uh, LAT, and then kind of is part of this cluster that that forms around the TCR. And the function that it has is to cleave phosphatidylinositol by phosphate uh, and release. Uh, deacylglycerol and uh, ionositol-3-phosphate, uh, which then uh, continue downstream signaling, including ERK activation, and importantly, uh, calcium uh, calcium release from uh, the, the, the endoplasmic reticulum uh, stored. So what they what they show is that basically you have a uh, inter kind of an interruption of this part. So there's uh, problems with calcium signaling and the, and the and the efflux of calcium upon TCR engagement. Um, they, they they don't really know what exactly is going on. They don't give us a particular mechanism on how sucralose is interfering with the function of of this of the phospholipase. Um, they do some kind of interesting. It's an interesting um, protocol which they use a machine called Orby Sims in which they have like a. Cryo EM mass spectrometry 
very I did not completely understand, but basically they can look, uh, you can do imaging of chemical on the surface of the cells uh, with like micron resolution, and they can detect which are the which are the particular chemicals, and that's how they see that sucralose is not really getting into the cells. They don't see it going through the membrane, but it seems to be interfering with the proper composition of the membrane away. And that prevents uh, the phospholipase from kind of getting in the right place at the right time and being and, and acting downstream. So I thought it was a little bit sad. It was not completely clear what's going on, but that's as far as they get. And they do show that there's some functional uh, consequences of this. This is some reduction. So at this very, what they consider rather high, uh, doses of, of sucralose, they see reduction in some T-cell function, reduction in tumor control. But what they focus on, and they're kind of trying to see the glass half full, is that they can also uh, help reduce the severity of some autoimmune model. They have some uh, diabetes models in, in, in these mice. And it shows that they can actually reduce the onset of, of diabetes in these mice. And so basically the bottom line of this paper is that no sucralose, the amounts of, that a normal person consumes probably is not doing anything. Uh, these amounts are very high, uh, but they like to suggest that maybe given the sucralose is safe otherwise, could be used as a, as a uh, treatment for autoimmunity or for, for reducing actually for dampening uh, T cell activation. Uh, in, in, in patients. So interesting, I think it was like, it felt very controversial at the beginning. In the end, it's like, man, you're probably fine eating sucralose, but maybe if we pump you up with a little bit of that, it could help you, uh, could be a alternative uh, immune, um, immune controlling uh, drug. I don't know what you think. It's interesting. I don't know how much you can pump it in. You'd have to like IV it or something. Because if you have too much of this, it kind of gives you GI distress. So I was going to ask what the microbiome was showing. So they don't see, they looked into my, I forgot to mention, they do like, they don't see changes in the microbiome that would, that would explain the results. So this effect doesn't happen in germ-free mice that they actually go that far? Uh, I don't think so, but they do see effects on the proliferation in vitro. Okay. I was wondering if like sucralose is being metabolized at all. And that's what's causing some of this is a metabolite of the bugs by super, sucralose because they can chew it up and we can't. They don't see, no, they just see, we find no consistent shift in bacterial species, but they don't do it in germ-free mice. It's true. Well, we're going to be having a great conversation here soon with doctors Miriam Murad and Mark Davis about uh, a conference. But if you are going to a conference soon, like Immunology 2023, or even IUIS Congress, or if you're looking just to expand your network, make the most of your experience by downloading our collection of tools to help you prepare for your next event. Stem Cell Technologies downloadable checklists and guides include recommendations on how to get ready before attending conferences, tips for networking, best practices for your LinkedIn profile, and more. Download the conference toolkit at www.stemcell.com slash conference hyphen toolkit. So today we have a very special episode this is also our, as we mentioned, our 50th episode with the podcast. And we're really happy that we're going to discuss uh, a very nice upcoming conference uh, with two very special guests that are actually coming here for the second time. So we have with us uh, Professor Miriam Merad. She's from the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai at New York. And she has already joined us to talk about her research uh, last December. 
And uh, we are also talking to Professor Mark Davis uh, from, uh, from Stanford University. And he is um, also going to talk with us about the conference from the International Union of Immunological Societies that is going to take place this year in Cape Town in, at the end of November. So thank you so much for joining, and we're very uh, happy to have you both back. My pleasure. Very excited to have you here. All right, so I'll, I'll, I'll start first. There's international conferences, and then there's international conferences. What I mean by that is a lot of international conferences are in Western Europe, and this is not that. And so I think just diving in, you're hosting a conference of immunologists in South Africa. What does that look like from a conference planning and an objectives that really makes it stand apart and unique from kind of what I think most people think about who probably listen to this podcast in terms of conferences? Maybe I'll, I'll start just because I was part of the uh, early lobbying to have this conference in, in Cape Town. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, uh, the the international conferences have typically been in uh, developed countries in Europe, Japan, uh, uh, more recently China, um, you know, uh, areas that had a, a lot of infrastructure, a lot of uh, money in, in terms of research. Um, and uh, but we made um, an international congresses, which have been going on since uh, I believe this 1960s. In fact, this is the the 40 year anniversary of my first international uh, congress, which was in Kyoto, Japan. Um, I was just a child at that time, but but it, it made a big impression on me. Um, and uh, we made the argument, uh, Clive Gray and and others uh, in in South Africa made made a, a successful argument that we'd never had the International Congress, even though immunology is very international. Lots of places are doing it. I mean, it's a huge, uh, you know, the immune system is a huge life support system that's really important to basically everyone, uh, and especially in areas where uh, you have these terrible you know, uh, diseases. Uh, you know, I once was trying to persuade the Gates Foundation to work on flu, and they said, well, no, you know, Mark, the, the people we, we care about, uh, flu is the least of their infectious disease problems. They've got much more serious stuff going on, and, and that's what we're focused on, and that's totally appropriate. Uh, but so anyway, we actually were um, pre-pandemic saying, well, you know, immunology has been uh, largely focused on um, uh, first world diseases like autoimmunity and not enough focused on uh, third world problems like infectious diseases, like malaria, like uh, HIV, like TB. Uh, and, and, and that was our argument. Um, and and uh, that we really, this, we should not only will it help the people in those countries to have this international uh, activity? And, and you know, immunology has been such a, a ha happening field, uh, but it would introduce international immunologists from the first world to the, the problems of, of the third world. Uh, and, and that was what we, uh, propose why why we said this is a unique opportunity we should be doing this here um 
And then the pandemic hit and it delayed by a year the conference. It, it should have been 2022. It was actually now it's 2023. But uh, if anything, the pandemic has made it clear that infectious disease is really a thing that isn't just in third world countries. It isn't just a problem there. But you might have noticed it was kind of a big problem everywhere. And we all had to accommodate it. And, and many people died or, or have uh, lingering health problems from this really big pandemic. So um, so that helped that I think that helped seal the argument. Uh, I mean, the the International Committee had already decided on Cape Town and and, and for those reasons. But uh, if anything, the, the pandemic has made it even more um, even more dramatic how we need to think more about um, infectious diseases and vaccines and things like that. Um, you know, vaccine vaccines have not been popular in academics. They were considered to be okay, Pester figured this all out. Um, and uh, now it's just up to the companies to, uh, you know, do uh, do what they need to do. And then, but the, the actual fact is the companies uh, have not put much into the research into vaccines. They're still doing what Pasteur did, uh, even when it doesn't work. And, and the, the diseases like HIV and TB and malaria are you know, then another dimension of uh, difficulty uh, compared to the ones that uh, have worked based on what Pester did or, or some of the modern variations. So, um, so an important thing is also to re-engage the academic community in under, trying to understand vaccines at the level that we need for HIV, malaria, and, and TB. I so much agree with you that uh, there is so much knowledge uh, that you know happened in the last decades, uh, and yet you know there are diseases. You know, I am from North Africa, from Algeria. There are diseases that are still, you know, occurring, prevalent that would benefit tremendously from a lot of development in in, in the Western world. And I think the 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 goal really first is it's a statement that all of us are, are going there, but but also that we need to mobilize knowledge to really continue to understand how we can cure, prevent um, very prevalent disease. And, and this idea that there are some disease in, in, in the low and middle income country and, and not in Western countries, so we shouldn't care about this. I think COVID proved, proved us wrong, right? It's, it's, we are super global uh, now um, species, right? Because we travel and 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 and, and microbe can evolve. It's very important that we think globally about everything that we do. And goal uh, here is to really try to think about problems that are endemic in Africa. And I think by going there, and 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 I have to say the international community have been extremely enthusiastic about going there and meeting African scientists. I think this is what we want to achieve. Is is really. Uh, making sure that there are problems there that needs to be addressed full force and bringing you know, the, the, the recent immunology development and, and the knowledge that, that, that is really tremendous um, to these problems. You know, one thing we hope to come out of that are collaborations that A, with more awareness uh, of um, 
immunologists in the, in the first world of these problems, uh, they could be forming productive collaborations with uh, people on the ground there. And I think I think that would be one of the one of the best outcomes. Yeah, it's 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 so true. So, uh, you know, there's an example of uh, working on a disease. Not many people have heard of it called histiocytosis. And the only reason why I worked on it is because uh, previous uh, uh, colleague, well, phenomenal immunologist Ralph Steinman, who had the Nobel Prize for the discovery of dendritic cells, once organized a meeting on this disease in a in a place where we saw patients uh, uh, suffering from this disease. We all went there and we decided, well, we're going to spend a little bit of time working on the disease. And many discoveries came out of this conference. So things, you know, tremendous things can happen when you know you bring people together and you highlight, you know, what are the problems that we need to really uh, think about. Uh, so the hope is that lot of collaboration indeed as uh as, as mark pointed out will 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 really you know, be initiated there and then continue to develop after the meeting yeah so i was going to say that i see a lot of yeah in, interesting uh themes uh, what you mentioned so the idea of bringing global immunology to uh third world countries or like to somewhere outside of the main focus of research because to bring this expertise to the ground over there to, to expose people that maybe are not uh, always uh, done their research in very kind of western problems or diseases that are uh, characteristics of very highly industrialized societies and then they forget that as you mentioned all these things they still exist they just don't see them in their everyday life i think that's super interesting also for me, coming from uh, the global south as well, um, it, it is good sometimes to have these uh, kind of effort to bring the latest uh, and, and the, the the community to this area, so to the to the global south. And just want to say that um, just for our listeners, because maybe not everybody is aware of the International Union of Immunological Societies and kind of the ethos. Uh, uh, of this association and what is composed of. So would you like to maybe just give me a very quick uh, um, comment on what the IUIS is? Uh, yes, it, it was created in the 60s, in fact, by a group of immunologists from the Western world, you know, Europe and and and, and America and, and United States and Canada to really think globally about immunology, right? So the idea is that all the immunology society from specific countries or regions will get together regularly to first organize these type of big conferences and making sure that everyone gather in one places, but also organize committees to focus on, on big problem on, of in immunology. So there is a, a committee that thinks about clinical immunology, immune diagnostics, veterinary immunology, uh, vaccine committees. And, and these people are usually the members of these committees, often have, are also sitting in other societies in their own country, but they are thinking more globally about specific problem. And um, so I became the president uh, uh, in January, and for, so I'll be president for three years. And 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 really, the the goal is to uh, enhance collaboration between countries, think about global problems. So, for example, you know, there is this um, 
again, when we are thinking about immune diagnostics, you know, there are very few immune diagnostic tests to really measure how we are doing immunologically. In fact, I would like Mark to comment on that because Mark has been saying this for a long time and, uh, and he built a whole infrastructure to really measure the human immune system. Yet, you know, we want to bring this you know, to the clinic so that, you know, in our routine checkup, we could at least measure how we are doing immunologically. And this is a complicated process that requires uh, with different type of regulation in different countries. So we think about this, you know, in in uh, globally. Uh, there is a big focus on, on vaccine and vaccine distribution. So we can make phenomenal vaccine in one place, but how can we get it, you know, to write, you know, to be distributed in, in this? So during COVID, we thought a lot about this. Uh, there is also uh, knowledge, how we can bring you know, different you know, knowledge to the less exposed, right? So this is the goal of this International Union of Immunology Societies, which should be the mother of all societies. And in fact, all our members are, as I've said, you know, belong to other societies. Society. And the big mission is that big Congress. And the big Congress, this is where there is a larger scientific, it's, it's a beautiful Congress, really, because there's a larger scientific community, sorry, scientific committee from uh, people from all over the world. And we think of what to highlight here. You know, Mark is leading the effort, he's the chair of the scientific committee, and he insisted on you know focusing on infection disease and, and focusing on all the immune response to infection and vaccines. How often is the Congress uh, take, taking place? Every three years. And it's a very serious endeavor because we vote for what country is going to uh, host the next one. The next one would be in Vienna in 2025. Now it's two years because we delayed uh, by one year, you know, this one. Um, we're hoping that yeah, it will continue. It should continue to circle across continents. You have a conference every three years. It's international focus. What are your main themes for this specific conference? You know, our listeners are listening to the podcast. They're going to go, well, they're thinking about going to this. What are they going to get here specifically this time around? Uh, you know, uh, it's, we're, we're trying to cover the, uh, the waterfront. We clearly have emphasized infectious diseases and, and particularly uh, highlighting with, with special programs, uh, the serious diseases of, of the African continent, uh, malaria, HIV, TB. Um, and, uh, but, but we don't want to miss, you know, we want, it's a big tent. We want everybody to have some piece of the, of the action here. And so there's, you know, cancer immunotherapy is a huge, is a huge deal clinically. It's transformed oncology uh, treatment and, um, and and promises to to be even better right now uh, a fraction of people are are being cured which is a miracle which is you know wasn't happening before with chemotherapy and radiation but now with smart immunology a significant number of people are actually uh, being cured or, or have uh, remissions for uh, that that last quite a long time but there's still a lot of room there's still a lot of people that are not benefiting enough and and so there's that's a huge area of research a huge area of commercial uh, research and, and we have industry sponsors and, and participation. Uh, we have speakers from um, Moderna and and I think BioNTech also to uh, talk about the vaccines and about you know they've been leading leading the kind of most modern uh, immunology effort in the vaccine world. Immunology touches almost every disease. Uh, and I tell the cardiologists at Stanford that that. 
Cardiology is a subdiscipline of immunology. They they don't take that very well. But but there are there there's definitely you know there's an intersection there that uh, is going to be really important. Is building and building and and uh, is really important, and we want to tell people about that. Uh, computation is also huge in immunology. Um, you know, uh, there was this mantra for many years about uh, uh, hypothesis uh, testing and mechanistic experiments being the gold standard, and uh, that worked. That that works reasonably well with experiments with mice, but it doesn't work well with experiments with humans. And that doesn't mean um, humans aren't important or that we, we don't need to get that data. But it's a different kind of data. We have to think of it differently. Um, I think of I tell I, I tell people it's um, ignorance based uh, uh, science that uh, that we we don't know anything. So let's just go in there and start measuring stuff and see what what falls out what what uh where what what giving us a clue and then you can deeper into that disease or into that that phenomena so anyway so immunology has been an incredibly dynamic field um or like every week i've been in it and and it's just uh it's constantly evolving it ha and it has a lot more room to go um and uh you know we need to make better vaccines we need new ways to treat cancer, uh, building on what has been successful. Um, we need uh, new uh, treatments for autoimmunity. The, all the treatments we have for autoimmunity right now are palliative, that they reduce the frequency of autoimmune incidents, but they don't cure, nothing cures the disease. And, and the reason is we don't know enough about it. We don't know really, it, it's, enough about why it starts and then why it doesn't resolve. It just it sort of seems to go into its own thing that that is perpetuating and, of course, debilitating the people. So there's a lot of medical mysteries um, that um, where immunology is is really um, a, a strong part of it. So uh, and, and that's what makes it exciting um, from a research point of view is that not only are there new things to discover, especially in humans and human diseases. But um, if you discover something, you can almost immediately think of how to apply it to uh, patient care uh, and to some of these diseases. And, you know, there's a whole pipeline of um, basic scientists, physician scientists, industry scientists, and uh, productions and, and uh, development of, of medicines and so forth, which is, you know, I think this is uh, the most, uh, I think the, I, I'm somewhat biased, but I think it's the most happening uh, part of biology today. We will have a lot of neuroimmunology session, aging, dementia. Yeah, there's a lot of data that inflammations are really driving the aging process or at least contributing. So, so we will cover all these aspects. But there's also another aspect of this meeting that's as important where we will have roundtable discussion or debates on big issues, you know, in science and society. So we will be talking, for example, about uh, data sharing, you know, so how do we share data efficiently? We will be talking 
talking about uh, um, knowledge, you know, like how do you really educate the public about, you know, what we are doing? We saw the lack of knowledge, which was very helpful during the pandemic, right? Uh, the public was super confused by by the scientists and some non-immunologists started to say, well, in America, there was not only non-immunologists that hurt us, but, but in any way, in any case, it's, I think education is going to be a big part of, of this, uh, of, of the meeting, how you educate, uh, how you fight misinformation. Uh, that was a, the, that really uh, is, is an important subject for us. It's a complex problem, but how you know, can, we, can we build tools to fight misinformation? We will be talking about the future of publishing, you know, uh, publishing science. It's a big problem of how that maybe is technical here. I don't have to go into details, but there is a lot of open access journals and and how uh, what what what's the future looks like. We will be talking about building capacity in low and middle income countries, and we will have lots of very exciting debates and and roundtable discussion on these. We will be um, talking about. Um, uh, there is uh, uh, about uh, vaccine distribution, you know, which I mentioned earlier, uh, and uh, and how people in low and middle income countries face you know, the the COVID pandemics and some of the resources they they built and how they were some of them were penalized. So there is a whole uh, 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 set of of uh, also discussion that's going to also be happening in addition to to the dive into uh, our scientific you know field. So I see there's there's a lot of uh, room for people that attend the meeting, not only to go for the science, but also for the role of immunology in the larger picture, kind of in uh, and, and, and guiding a lot of the things that actually affect people's lives, even outside of uh, the academic. Uh, I think that's very I think that's very cool because it's important to give space for those conversations. And um, and I also want to say that. Uh, maybe moving a little bit away, I'm going back to what Mark was was mentioning. The this idea of having people from different areas uh, and and kind of showing how there's a connection between the academic research, the industry, and how we get those uh, advances into uh, the clinical care. Um, and I just wanted to point out for our listeners because I thought it was really nice that there's a couple of really interesting, like for example, keynote lectures from very um, uh, prominent scientists, uh, Nobel laureates among them. So people like Emmanuel Charpentier, James Allison, so Emmanuel Charpentier, of course, uh, Nobel Prize for uh, the, her, her co-discovery of, of, of CRISPR as a gene editing uh, technology. Uh, Jim Allison, uh, very important for immunotherapy research, a, a key uh, a key player in that in that field, also Nobel Prize laureate. Also, very interesting people from the uh, more applied and, 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 and industry. So uh, there's people like Vishva Dixit from Genentech. He's from Kenya. And he's from Kenya. So it's all important to have representation. Uh, people like Oslem Tudeci from uh, a chief medical officer at BioNTech. And also I thought it was really nice that some of the keynote lectures, as uh, referring to what you said, uh, are research from people are uh, doing research in Africa such as Glenda, uh, Glenda Gray, Henry Mwandumba, doing a research in HIV, in tuberculosis. So I think that that's also very, the, the list of, of people doing the keynotes uh, as part of the preliminary program is very interesting for, for our listeners to know uh, what's coming. And 
So I want to say now that we're talking about uh, in, in involving, as you as you mentioned, uh, researchers in case this case from Africa, which is the hosting continent in a way. So there, I think it's important to give them a spotlight, but also from low and middle income countries. So I just want to make sure that we uh, let our listeners know that for those people that are applying for low and middle income countries, that there is uh, a concerted effort to provide with scholarships to. Uh, to cover the cost of attending the conference. And I think this is very important for our listeners to know that if they, they can apply if this is their situation. So uh, I know it's uh, very close to, to your heart, Miriam. So maybe do you want to give a quick recap of uh, what to expect when applying for these scholarships? Yeah, well, this started because, uh, you know, uh, the, the the statistics of attendance of, of trainees, I'm talking about trainees from low and middle income country in, 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 in this type of meeting in prior big immunology congress was very low, right? So the challenge that, uh, you know, we, we, you know, decided the, the challenge that we have is to really change, you know, the, the, these numbers. So it used to, as, as I was mentioning earlier, like le less than 1% of, of the trainees were coming from the low and middle income countries. You know, it can be transformative to be exposed to this type of environment, right? So we want to change the optics of that. And we want to have 10% of the trainees attending our conference coming from low and middle income countries. The problem is that there is often not uh, as much support for uh, this type of uh, uh, conferences in, in low and middle income countries. So we have to fundraise for it so that we can cover the expenses of as many people, as, as many trainings as possible. And our goal is to cover 500 uh, grants from for, for trainees from, from these countries. So we uh, have progressed in our fundraising effort, uh, but I'm hoping that um, we will continue to fundraise. So, so if people who are interested by this cause are listening to us, please uh, reach out to us. We still have not reached the 500 uh, number um, goal that we had set for ourselves, but but definitely for trainees that want to apply, if you check the box, low and middle income country, the, the fee that is associated with the abstract submission is waived. And our our hope is that at least a certain number of, of, of those applicants will be totally fully subsidized to to spend you know the these five days with us at Cape Town. Deadline is May taken, so don't miss the deadline, please. It's two months basically and change. I wanted to add for for listeners that are want to follow the IUIS. So there's uh, in social media. Uh, if you follow IUIS uh, underscore online, then you will find all the information and be updated with all the the data, the important dates and the, and the noble, no, no, new stuff uh, from the program. So the program is still rather uh, preliminary. As I mentioned, some of the keynote uh, uh, talks are already uh, settled, but there's a lot of space for people to bring their research and to present. Will there be poster, will there be invited talks? What what would be the, the so people can present for a poster presentation, also for maybe uh, short talks? Is that also a possibility for trainees applying? Of course, there will be from those abstracts that are submitted, some will be selected for short presentation. We will have a lot of poster sessions, but the goal of the abstract is also to select from for short talk, so which um, you know will provide visibility to this young. We have a, to this young scientist. We have another program called Rising Stars, which is focused on early career scientists, so faculty in the five first years of building their own laboratory, because this is where 
usually we struggle and uh, a lot um, and uh, and there will be a specific program to invite junior faculty also uh, to to give a talk that's also another effort that we are building and it's um but that's is already uh, advertised and we already received an uh, application for it all right so just so to to going to uh, start wrapping our conversation so the ios 18th International Congress of Immunology will take place this year in Cape Town, South Africa, uh, between November 27 and December 2nd. So every uh, trainee, every scientist in immunology is welcome to submit their abstracts before uh, or up to May 2nd. And uh, scholarship will be available for, for trainees from lower and middle income countries. And uh, is there, have you guys been to Cape Town already? Is there for us? We're going to be there too, so also very excited about uh, meeting everyone over there. Any highlights uh, for those who already know the city? There's a there's a a long tradition of wine making, and so there are wine regions uh, not right in Cape Town, but but in outer lying areas. Uh, All right, liking this. Uh, you know, just 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 landing in the airport, it's a, a spectacular view of Table Mountain. Uh, that's just sort of right there and dominating the the whole area, really. And then there are game parks, shark cages. You can go down to the Cape of Good Hope. You can drive down there, and it's it's a nice scenery and uh, penguins and and uh, and stuff. So uh, that's just a that's a day trip out of Cape Town. Uh, so there's there's lots. Of, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful country. Cool. I want to go see African penguins. <laughs> I've seen South American ones. I wonder if they're any different. Just the accent. Yeah. Just the accent. <laughs> <laughs> My South African uh, uh, colleagues tell me that Cape Town is the most interesting, one of the most interesting cities. So they were pleased that we were going to Cape Town. It's going to be exciting. Please come and join us. We will. Yeah. We're very much looking forward. Uh, and I think I, I really... Uh, appreciate the 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 as you say the location i think is great and um i hope to see people from all over the world it's going to be super fun to to attend and a great opportunity for everyone to go and meet and network and make start those those contacts that will allow some break uh through research to to come to fruition so it can only be a good thing um before we we finish anything else you want to share with our with our listeners no thank you for having us yeah, thank you. And and please, please, listeners, come. It's going to be terrific. We'll be there and we look forward to doing all the things. I mean, I've been excited ever since I learned about this a month or so ago. IUIS2023.org is the website to find all the information, register, send your abstract, and stay up to date with the news of the program. You are on top of that, Brenda. You've obviously been to that website recently. I know. It's a beautiful website. It's a beautiful website. Well, thank you again. Bye-bye. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at at Immunopodcast or by email info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time.